If you have a Bible with you, feel free to turn to Psalm chapter 23, although I would wager to bet that most of you don't even need to turn there. Um, And that's not because you're all great Bible memorizers, but this is the one that you've heard since you were a little kid. Uh, Maybe this is the first time you're hanging out in a church, and I bet you've still heard this several times before. And we're in the midst of a two-week journey through Psalm 23. We spent all of August studying through through some psalms. Um, And these last two weeks, we've been studying through Psalm 23, trying to look at it in a brand new way. Um, And we've been uh, really helped out by this resource here. Again, uh, I'm sharing it at the beginning just as an honest way to show you my resource. A lot of the information I get comes from from this guy, Philip Keller, and also to commend it to you. Uh, It is so short, you could read this book in one sitting, uh, but it's it's full of of great wisdom. Uh, It's called A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23 by Philip Keller. A good student of the Bible, but also an actual, honest-to-goodness, shepherd in East Africa. And so uh, he's got all kinds of great insight in there, and I would commend it to you uh, absolutely. Let me read this to you. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me along the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. A couple years ago, uh, Rach and I went to Colorado. Um, we were new into the Christian Missionary Alliance, and so the headquarters of the Christian Missionary Alliance is in Colorado Springs. So they have new workers come just to sort of have an orientation experience, um, which the orientation experience was okay, but Colorado Springs was awesome. So if you, <laughs> if you ever get to go there, like, it's worth a new worker's orientation, right? No, the new workers was fine. I don't want to demean that in any way, but the sights and the beauty there was remarkable. Uh, one of the things that we did uh, was we went to Pikes Peak. And maybe you've heard of Pikes Peak before, maybe you've been on it. And I am so, I'm such a, um, a need-to-do person and a not-a-sit-and-enjoy person that I decided we would drive Pikes Peak rather than sit in the train. Because I just can't, I can't think about sitting in a train to, to go up a mountain one hour at like two miles per hour and come down it. And I don't even know if that's what it's like at Pikes Peak, but we had gone, we had been to uh, Mount Washington in New Hampshire, and I'd ridden the train there as a kid. And I'm telling you, I'll never ride a train up a mountain again. It, it was so long, and it was so boring. And on the way home, everyone was asleep and snoring, and I was freaking out right in the middle of that train car. So I said, we're going to drive this thing. And it was wild to drive up this mountain, uh, like nothing I've ever experienced before. So we get there, and they say, uh, when we get there, they check your gas tank, right? because it has to be three-quarters full, otherwise you won't be able to make it back down. Uh, luckily, it was, right? And so we get the journey, and we're going along, and I'm thinking, this is great. You're just kind of winding around through forest, it looks like, and you can see different things. And then all of a sudden, the guardrails kind of come to an end, and you're getting onto steep turnbacks, right, all the way up to the top of the mountain. 
and we pull all the way up to the top of the mountain, and I get out and take a deep breath, and I can't breathe, right? There's no oxygen up there for me to breathe. And what's the worst experience of it all, it was there was fog everywhere. We had driven all the way up this mountain, and we couldn't see two feet in front of us. I'm told the the view up there is gorgeous, but don't ask me, because my my experience was I drove all the way up this harrowing drive for nothing, right? Uh, but they sell these special donuts that they only can make at altitude at the top of Pike's Peak. And so I, we got some, and I ate one. It was good. Uh, and I tried to eat one the next day, and it wasn't so good, right? There's something about the altitude and the way they make it. We were in the shop just kind of roaming around because there was really no view for us to have. And Rach, um, I had left some in the car, so I went back to get some from the car. It was a rental car. And when I went out, it was sleeting, like crazy. Now you might say, well, that's normal. Well, it was July 31st, right, in Colorado, and it was sleeting like crazy. And I, of course, ran back in and said, Rach, we're out of here, right, because I've got to drive back down this mountain without guardrails and in the sleet. There were literally plows up there, salting the roads and, and plowing the roads. Can you imagine this? I want to know what it's like to work in that shop on top of that mountain, I imagine they take the train. I don't know. Um, and so we went down as slow as we possibly could, right? And they make you put it into, into low gear. And uh, a little ways down, they pull you over and they check your brakes. Um, and you either got to pull off and wait or they give you the okay and you can go all the way down. And we made it all the way down to the bottom of the mountain. And I said, check that one off the list. We'll never do it again, right? <laughs> What's interesting about the psalm this morning is that it literally is a movement up a mountain. Um, or maybe not a mountain, the, the height of Pike's Peak, uh, but it's a movement from low ground to high ground. And that's the imagery that we're going to talk about here at the end of this psalm. Uh, the poetic imagery that David, as a shepherd, understands is that there's a seasonal reality to being a shepherd. In the winter months, the winter and the spring months, you and your sheep are on your homestead, in your fields that you've prepared. And come summertime into fall time, you take them out. And you head for the high ground, the lush grounds where they can eat so the ground at home can be restored for the winter season. And the journey from the low ground to the high ground is not an easy journey. It's a lot like driving up Pikes Peak, but probably way worse. (laughs) if we can even imagine being a shepherd. In fact, the valley of the shadow of death that David talks about uh, is just that. Traveling through the valleys full of predators, full of weather that can happen in a moment's notice, flash floods, uh, any kind of thing. And the shepherd has to be skilled to navigate his entire flock of sheep, not just himself, through this harrowing journey to get to the destination, the lush high grounds where the sheep can be fed and nourished in the summer season. And there's a very real spiritual analogy for us this morning, isn't there? We like our homestead. We like the ground that we're comfortable with, the places where we know, and we like to eat and be nourished, the well that we're comfortable with that the shepherd brings water to. But you can't spend your whole life on the homestead because the shepherd is constantly leading his flock In fact, if you listen to anything Jesus says about discipleship, it is always marked by active words. 
It is never marked by static or passive words. They are words like follow, right? You don't follow if you're standing still. Take up your cross and follow me. In fact, when Jesus speaks about his closest disciples, of which we, we hoped to be, right? He says to them in, in that last, last word before he ascends to heaven in Matthew's gospel that um, go and make disciples, right? And the actual translation of go is as you are going. In other words, it's not even a command that Jesus gives. It's an assumption that he has of us if we're disciples. You are going, right? Do you need your homestead? You need your homestead, right? You need to return to it and be filled and nurtured, but you need to be moving. And the only way you can move is if you go with the shepherd, because otherwise you will not navigate the journey well. And this is the imagery that David is painting so poetically and so beautifully in the end of this psalm. He told us all about the homestead in the beginning, right? It sounded really great, and it is great. The Lord is my shepherd. I'm boasting in him. I shall not want. In other words, not that I have everything I say I want, but I have everything I need, right? He gives me everything that I need. He he creates for me green pastures and makes me lie down on them. He gives me rest, and we talked all about that. We don't have time to go over it, but listen to the sermon from last week if you need to. The homestead is great, but discipleship is about moving with Jesus. I think what we'll find out this morning is that many of us lack intimacy with God because we don't move with Jesus. And that to experience intimacy with God, you need to journey with Jesus. Because intimacy with God is much more about trusting than it is about knowledge. And in our Western American world, that doesn't compute. Because everything is about knowledge here. In fact, this is what's happening here. You're listening to me talk words, right? We're not doing anything. And so everything about our faith is set up in terms of knowledge, give and receive knowledge. And we can fill our head with knowledge, but that doesn't create intimacy. But the way that David speaks about the shepherd is very intimate. So the question before you is, are you willing to journey with Jesus? Right? Or is the homestead, are you gripping tight to that? And I want to suggest to you five things from this psalm that are reasons why you need to go with Jesus when he leads you out of the homestead for seasons. Five things. The first thing is, you are prone to getting stuck in ruts. Right? You are prone to getting stuck in ruts. And when I say you, it's a plural, like we. So I should say we. Like I'm included in this. We are prone to getting stuck in ruts. Uh, And we get stuck in all kinds of ruts. We get stuck in academic ruts. We get stuck in social ruts. We get stuck in family ruts. We get stuck in commuting ruts, but we get stuck in spiritual ruts, don't we? Constantly getting stuck in spiritual ruts. Well, this worked for me in the past. Why is it not working anymore, right? I remember um, lots of things for me revert back to sports, so if you're not a sports person, I apologize for this analogy, but I remember at the end of one of the, the Eagle seasons, they had ended kind of in disappointment again, and they were interviewing the president of the team, who was Joe Banner at the time, And they said to him, are things going to change? And his answer was uh, that that a definition of of insanity is doing the same thing and expecting something different, right? But we do that in our spiritual lives, don't we? We constantly go to the same place over and over and over again, and it doesn't always give us what we expect it to. 
the ways that you met God in your teenage years probably are different than the ways you meet him now. The ways in which God spoke to you even a season ago can be different than now. And so the reality is, unless you're willing to move with Jesus, you're going to get stuck in a rut. David writes that he leads me in paths of righteousness. Now, uh, to us, that sounds like a holy statement, right? He leads me in the holy places. But the word righteousness really just means right, right? It just means correct. In other words, he leads me to the right places. Now, follow it all the way through, it's going to be about holiness too. But that's not what we're talking about. We're not trying to cultivate this pseudo-religious environment about ourselves. He leads me to these righteous places. No, he's going to take you to the right place, is basically what we're saying. Now, if you knew what that place was ahead of time, you probably wouldn't go. Okay? And so, again, this is all about trust. One thing that Keller points out in his book, which is so interesting to me, is that sheep left to their own devices will walk the same paths over and over and over again. So much so that they dig ruts. And they end up being big gullies that they walk through constantly. And ultimately, they're overcome by them. right? And there's no grass around them to eat. And the idea here is that the shepherd, if he would just follow him, will lead you out of your ruts and into new land. right? Where you can graze and be fed and be well cared for. We are so prone to spiritual ruts. Many of us grew up hearing that the way you meet God is X, Y, Z. Very formulaic. Um, And God bless the church for doing that because many of us meet God in that way. But the truth is that if you're committed only to that way, it will become a rut, right? And you'll go there in a formulaic way, expecting certain things. God is not interested in a formulaic pursuit of him. He wants intimacy with you. And so sometimes it's about taking you to new places. And the second reason that I would encourage you to journey with Jesus is that you grow best when you are stretched. You grow best when you are stretched. Listen to the way David talks. I'm I'm so drawn back to the King James, which is so odd for me, but I learned this as a tiny little kid. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil. What is David talking about here, right? How on earth could you call something the valley of the shadow of death and right behind it say, I fear no evil? This makes no sense, right? Is he afraid in those moments, right? You better believe he's afraid in those moments, right? But what he knows is that the shepherd is greater than what he faces. So he's not talking about an absence of fear, right? When you read that, you sort of think this, this holier-than-thou guy that's led in the paths of righteousness, and he doesn't fear anything. He'll go into, no, well, obviously he faced Goliath, so he understood something. But I would wager to bet there was some trembling in David when he stepped out to face Goliath. Otherwise, he's not human, right? But he was confident that win or lose, Jesus was greater, right? God was greater. And God's will would be accomplished, win or lose. There's something about submitting yourself to God in trust that is a greater experience than fear. It does not erase fear. Don't let anyone tell you that in their religious ease, right? You will be afraid. I am afraid of lots of things, right? 
But in that moment, intimacy happens because you begin to depend on someone other than yourself. And you draw close to God. You draw close to Jesus. You sense the presence of His Spirit. Many of you are walking through the valley of the shadow of death now. Many of you have passed through it recently. For some of you, it's on the horizon. Like, not that you can see it, but it'll come. It happens to all of us in different levels. You can get a bad diagnosis. You can have a horrible season at work. You can have what seems to be irreparable situations in your family life. All kinds of different things that are going to come upon you in life. Right? And knowledge of God isn't going to help. But intimacy with God makes all the difference in the world. Now, let me just pause for a moment because I'm going to be harping on this. I am not telling you not to study the Bible and learn truth about God. Right? It is a pathway to intimacy, but it is not equal to intimacy. You understand? Right? God is relational. And we'll talk, I'm getting ahead of myself, but God is relational, wants us to pursue him in relational ways. It's why when you're going through a difficult experience and someone says, oh, God's with you, or uh, God works all things together for the good, right? In, in your present mind, you say thank you, and under your breath, you say you have no idea, right? It's so trite, because it's not about knowledge. You probably know that. Right? You need to trust him and experience it. And nothing I can tell you in knowledge is going to help you. All I can do is walk with you, right? And that changes everything. But what you will find, win or lose, success or no success in American terms, in that situation of life, is on the other side of it, if you've reached out for dependence upon God, your intimacy with God has grown exponentially. What you believed as intellectual truth before, you have now experienced. That in your moment of need, God actually was there. And at the end of it, God actually did use it for good. And at the end of it, uh, Jesus proved to be everything that he says he was. This is David's experience. Uh, Most people, when you read the psalm, you think, oh man, this is this beautiful thing, and David wrote this, and he probably was sitting on the hillside one day and watching over his sheep and, you know, just had this movement of the Spirit and wrote this beautiful song. Most scholars believe that David was on the run from his son Absalom, who was rebelling against him. It's why he could write the phrase, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, right? And even before that, David was running from Saul, who was trying to kill him, right? David isn't writing this in this moment of euphoria. He's writing this in a moment of intimate experience. You see the difference? It makes all the difference in the world. Friends, I, I hope that I never give you trite answers as a pastor. Sometimes I give them to you, and I perceive them by saying, this is going to sound trite, and I'm not trying to tell you in that way, but I want you to know, I want to reassure you. Right? We don't need any of that, of the trite answers. We need people who will commit to walk with each other through the valley of the shadow of death. right? Because even if it's not happening to you, but you walk with someone who's happening it, you're going to grow in intimacy with God too. You're going to see God, God shows up where he's needed. right? Oftentimes he's not needed on the homestead. There are fences and gates, and you're pretty well taken care of. But when you get out on the harrowing journey of life, you need him, and he's there. This is the experience of David in his psalm. Again, 
I have no idea what awaits you in life. For some of you, I know what you're going through now. For others of you, I know what you've gone through. And I'm quite confident for those of you who are on the other side of it, you would stand with me and say this, that your intimacy with God grew exponentially because of the experience that you would have never chosen for yourself. But you journeyed with him. You journeyed with him. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because he knows the shepherd is there, and he loves the shepherd, and he trusts the shepherd. Again, trusting Jesus doesn't mean you understand how he's going to maneuver the situation. It means you're willing to submit yourself to him. And some of you might be saying, well, the valley of the shadow of death could lead me to actual death. Yes. In fact, it could. But in a weird, Christian, victorious way, that's the ultimate, isn't it? Again, sounds trite. I get it. But to enter into the presence of God is the ultimate experience of the homestead. In the same way, the shepherd, excuse me, the sheep, fear no evil because they know where the journey is ultimately leading. For most of them, they've been to the high ground before. And they know where they're headed. And they know that while the journey is sometimes awful, getting there and experiencing it makes the journey worth it. We'll fear no evil. The third thing, third reason I would encourage you to take the journey with Jesus is that intimacy with Jesus, intimacy with God is experiential. It's experiential. Again, I've been harping on this a, a lot. It is not knowledge. Right? Knowledge is a pathway to God and a good one. If, I'm not telling you to set your Bible on the shelf and never read it again. That would be an awful thing to do. You need to be reading it constantly and immersing yourself in it. But if you think just taking in knowledge about God is going to cultivate intimacy with God, you're wrong. You're wrong. You'll have a great knowledge about God, and you'll have a great theology, and you'll be able to answer questions. But when it, you know, when it comes to it, <laughs> it's a different experience. It's intimacy. I said earlier that God wants us to pursue him relationally because God at the core is relational, right? In other words, God doesn't want us to just be relational with him just because that's what he wants. God actually, in his essence, is relational. Uh, We say that God is love. In his essence, he is love. He doesn't create it or manufacture it and then call us to it. It actually is him. And so when we do it, we're actually living out our call to bear his image, right? We're living as we were created to be. In the same way, God is relational. The very foundational doctrine of the Trinity demands that we understand that God is relational at his core. Right? Three persons, one essence. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit living in perfect harmony. In one essence, three persons. There are plenty of ways to understand the Trinity that are not orthodox. You know what I mean by that? Orthodox basically means uh, that are not true, right? So people understand the Trinity to say that, well, sometimes God manifests himself as Jesus, and sometimes he's the Father, and sometimes he's the Spirit, right? It's called modalism. The early church identified that as heresy. We live that oftentimes because we don't know how to process Trinity. At the core, God is relational, 
So we have to pursue him relationally. And when we do, we're living out the image of God. Pursuing God relationally, I think you can sum it up really in one word. It's trust. Trust. It's not about getting a a quiz or a test about Bible facts or theological facts and getting 100% on it. It's about living your life in trust. That's why Paul talks about walking by faith, right? Walking in the, in the spirit of this constant move, this constant act, activity of trust, movement, forward movement. You don't know what the next day is going to be, but you're going to live it as if everything you believe about God intellectually is actually physically real and true. Right? That is intimacy. That is trust. Right? I'm, not, I'm not calling you to, to like be risk-takers, you know, some, some of you are risk takers, others of you are more conservative, and everyone else is somewhere on the spectrum, right? Some of you are hearing this like, yeah, I'm a risk taker, we've got to take more risks. And other of you are like, that's not who I am, right? I'm not telling you to be someone you aren't, but what I'm telling you is you have to put into practice the things that you believe about God, otherwise there's no intimacy, right? You believe that God leads all things together for the good? Well, you need to live like it. You'll find intimacy. Right? You believe that God is full of grace? You need to live like it. So many of us live live the idea of God as gracious just in terms of knowledge, right? And so we believe that God forgives us, but we never experience it. And your soul is barren because of it. What you would find if you experienced it, if you actually stepped into that God actually loves you even though you're wildly imperfect, is unbelievable intimacy with God because he embraces you that way. It's not just a theological point of knowledge. It's actual experiential truth that can define your relationship with God. Listen to what David says here. And I find this so interesting. The other walk through the valley of shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Then he says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm not comforted by rods or staffs, right? (laughs) Like nothing about that makes me feel good. Right? I think about uh, my mom and dad had a wooden spoon that was the tool of punishment for me. There's no comfort in that, right? My, I had a great uncle. He lived in Pittsburgh. When you go back to Pittsburgh to visit my mom's family, he had a cane, and he would use that thing to, to nab unsuspecting kids as they walked through the hallways, right, just to, to laugh and be funny. Although one time I did ask him to borrow it to get a ball from under a car, and so I learned to love Uncle Carl's cane. Right, but like these images of me are like fear, like I'm afraid of them. I'm, they're not comforting to me. Why? Because they're, I'm thinking in terms of knowledge, not experience. Right? How does a shepherd use a rod? I was fascinated in reading Keller's book about the shepherd's rod. Early on in a shepherd's life, he would go out into the forest and take a young sapling and actually uproot the entire sapling and use the place where the trunk connects to the roots to be uh, the firm place, the end place of it. And he would craft it to take all kinds of care and time and crafting it to perfectly fit his frame and his ability. And then he would use it in remarkable ways. He would use it to protect the flock, right? So one way that he would protect the flock is snakes were rampant. And so as they would be walking along, he would smack the ground, right? One, to smack a snake if he saw it, but more to scare them away as the sheep were going along. 
In the same way, he would oftentimes see predators. Now, this is remarkable to me, right? But it's not like a predator is going to come up right next to you and you're going to like get into a hand-to-hand combat with a coyote or a cougar with this big sapling tree you've got. They literally chucked these things end over end and could hit wild animals at distance and protect their sheep. Can you imagine that? Just winging this thing all the way across the field and smacking a predator. Remarkable, isn't it? Have you ever felt God protect you experientially? I bet your intimacy level rose afterwards, didn't it? Maybe it didn't feel like he was right next to you, but all of a sudden, the rod came winging by and knocked the predator off your path. Maybe the predator was a real predator in terms of someone, a human being, who was after you in some way. Maybe it was simply temptation, right? And you were feeling this temptation. All of a sudden, in a moment, it was gone. The rod. You experienced it. You didn't resist it on your own. The rod. And if you would embrace that, your intimacy with God goes up because you are not by yourself, right? The rod is always there. He's crafted it perfectly to be able to fend off anything that comes at you. In the same way, the rod would be used to correct the sheep, right? So every once in a while, that thing comes winging at you, right? If you're off and you're about to fall somewhere, or you're about to get yourself into a poisonous plant or anything like that, and the shepherd couldn't get close enough to you to use something else, the rod could come winging at you, right? And that would be an unpleasant experience. And many of you have felt that. You've needed to be corrected. And you felt rebuked by God, or chastised, or, or, or whatever. But the reality of the rod is that the shepherd follows the rod, doesn't he? And he restores the sheep. And he brings it back and he reminds the sheep, I didn't do that just because of your target practice. I did that because look what you were about to do. Now come back into the fold. Many of us, because we live in such a need need of appearance, need of success kind of lifestyle, when we get smacked by the rod of the shepherd, we're put off by it. And we walk away from it. When if we would embrace it, what we would find on the other side of it is exponentially increased intimacy with God. He's not smacking you with the rod because he's ticked off at you. In the same way he's smacking a predator off you, he's protecting you with the rod still. Some people are asked the question, well, what is the rod? What's symbolic? And David's analogy here isn't meant to put everything with everything. So he's not thinking specifically, well, the rod is this, right? The rod can be anything. It can be your spouse. It can be your parents. It can be your children. It can be your church. It can be your pastor. It can be your church leadership. It can be the word of God when you're reading in the quiet of your own time. It can be a friend. It can be all kinds of things. God's able to connect with you in in whatever way. In the same way, the rod also is meant to examine. Keller tells this unbelievable story of sheep who are leaving the gates, and the shepherd would use the rod almost as like another gate to let them pass. And he would stop them, and he would inspect their wool. Um, Because um, parasites, or not really parasites, but bugs and skin disease would be there, and because the wool was so thick, you wouldn't be able to see it without careful examination. We don't like to be examined, 
right? We don't like tests that examine us. We don't like going to the doctor's office and getting examined. We don't like any of those things. But examination has a, a point, doesn't it? It's meant to find things before they get so awful that they're not able to be overcome. And this is what the shepherd is using it for. How often have you set yourself before God to allow him to examine you? David writes in another psalm, Search me, O God. Know my ways. See if there's any wicked part in me. Why? Better to find out now than down the road. The rod. An unbelievably, unbelievable experience of intimacy if we'd embrace it. And the staff. Now, the staff is the typical shepherd-looking thing. It's a long stick, oftentimes with the crook at the end, right? The big, and the shepherd would use it for, for lots of different things. He would use it, this is so, such a beautiful imagery. He would use it um, when, when uh, sheep, when lambs were born from use. Um, he would use the, the shepherd's staff to lift them up, right, and stand them on their feet. Because if the shepherd touched the baby, the, the, the lamb, uh, the scents and the stuff from his hands would cause the mom to reject it. And so the shepherd, with the most gentle care, lifts the sheep, the, the baby lamb, up and sets it on his feet so it's able to connect to the whole pack. Right? Staff, the intimacy of the staff. Have you felt that from God ever? Gently lifting you up and setting you on your feet. Not chastising you, not rebuking you, not isolating you. Gently doing it. In the same way, the staff most often was used to guide. And so they would take it and they would press it in on the side of the sheep just to make sure it walked on the right path. Right? Unbelievable. Have you felt that at times as you've walked through life? A gentle nudge from the shepherd saying, no, don't veer left. Let's keep going this way. Right? Oftentimes, people like to talk about the will of God as this bullseye. Right? We don't have time to talk about this. This would be another long series, but can I just open you up to the idea that God is not leading you to a very specific path, right? What he wants you to do is pursue him in intimacy and be open for him to use you as he sees fit to accomplish the will of his kingdom. There's a million different ways that could happen. But he'll guide you day by day as you let him. This is the will of God, right? It's not these these sort of hyper-spiritual, animistic prayers that we let out so that God will reveal to us this, you know, heavenly scroll for the rest of our life. This is what we're supposed to be doing. It's the day-by-day prod of the shepherd's staff that keeps us on the right path. And in the same way, the crook was used to rescue, right? A sheep that was stuck in something or hanging over the edge the perfectly half-rounded edge to pull them back. Knowledge will not attain for you any of these intimate experiences, but walking with the shepherd in life, you will find them and you will feel them and you will come to understand that everything you're reading as you're studying scripture and meditating on it like God has commanded and called us to do is actually true. Not just because the Bible said so, right? Which is a reason that it's true. Don't mishear me. But God actually wants to love you, not just talk about loving you. And then he says, he anoints my head with oil. And this is really a cleansing experience. Uh, So interesting that sheep um, would be coated in oil to rid themselves of 
insect infestation, and or skin infection. And the oil was the thing that was used to cleanse them. Right. So even though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, can we just call that life for a minute? Right. There are going to be times when you're going to catch a bug or catch a parasite or catch an infection. But the shepherd is the one who anoints your head with oil. He cleanses you and restores you. The rod and the staff and the oil. Intimacy and experiencing Jesus. Two more things. Uh, These will go quickly. The fourth thing is that Jesus always goes before you. Reasons why we should follow Jesus. He always goes ahead of you. It says that he uh, prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And this, this is starting to sound weird, isn't it? All of a sudden, like, he's got these sheep and everything's wonderful and he leads us in paths of righteousness and I walk through the valley of shepherds. And then he prepares a table. Like, so, like, as a child, I'm always picturing, like, what kind of chairs do you make for sheep to sit down and eat, right? Because what is going on here? How does sheep come to a table to eat? They're eating the grass, right? David has gone bonkers here for a minute. The table is not a food table. It's actually the high ground. It's actually the field that the sheep are headed to in the summer season. They are oftentimes called tablelands, or in our modern day words, mesas. Right? And these were the places of lush pasture that the journey would take you to. And the imagery here that David is getting at is that the shepherd had already been there in the wintertime and the springtime to prepare the ground so that it would be ready for the sheep when they got there. He had got the predators off the land. He had rid the ground of the poisonous plants. He had made sure the perimeter was secure so that when they got there, it was ready for them. Certainly in the presence of their enemies because it wasn't their homeland, right? It was a foreign land, but it had been well prepared. Friends, I hope it doesn't sound trite. Wherever God is calling you, Jesus has already been. And he has prepared it for you. You might say, you don't understand my life. Well, I understand this. God loved you enough that Jesus left the comforts of heaven to enter the difficulty of life on earth ultimately leading to his physical demise on the cross for sins he did not commit. Why? Because he was preparing the tablelands for you. And his resurrection shows you that he's coming back to get you. Wherever he has called you, you might say, you don't understand the temptations I face. Scripture reminds us that Jesus has faced had faced on his earthly life all the same temptations. In fact, he was tempted by the devil himself. You might understand all the ways I've been betrayed in my life. Yeah, he's felt that too. You you might understand that I've been all alone, felt it. You might understand that things didn't work out for me the way I thought they should. He has prepared the land for you. And so you can be confident that wherever he's leading you to, even if the journey there is a bit harrowing, that there is fertile ground 
where you will feed, be well cared for, and grow. This is the good shepherd. The last thing is a bit of a summation, but listen to how this psalm ends. My cup overflows. Right now he's in the presence of his enemy and his cup is overflowing. He didn't talk about an overflowing cup on the homestead, right? But now he's experienced the shepherd in in his full manifestation and his cup is overflowing, right? We're talking about joy here. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, right? He's experienced this now and now he knows that no matter where he goes, no matter where the journey takes him, no matter what, what might, where he might meet demise or not meet demise, no matter where he might feel isolated or fully in community, that mercy and love is going to follow him wherever he goes. Why? Because the shepherd follows him wherever he goes. And then he says, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You've got to understand what house means in ancient context. It means family, right? It's not a physical dwelling. It means you are in the family of God. And that's not just a cheap illustration for a local church. I mean you're in the care of the creator of the universe. Perhaps you found yourself in life right now feeling dry spiritually. Uh, Maybe you're in a rut. I don't know. I imagine some of you are. Percentages would say half or more of you are. And you've been doing the things that you've always done, and just and there's no like life coming to you. you. You haven't changed your beliefs about God, certainly not. Maybe you've even grown in your beliefs about God, but spiritually speaking, intimacy with God, he feels far, right? Maybe the staff of the shepherd is nudging you forward. There's something new, right? Even when the prophets spoke about Jesus in the coming covenant, It was a new thing that God was going to do. It was a new covenant that God was going to do. There are new things. For many of you, coming to be part of this new church plant has been a stretching experience. And what you found, because I've talked to you, is intimacy with God. Not because I'm some great preacher. Not because we do something special here at Hope. But because you've taken a risk and he's been there. You've taken a new journey. Maybe Maybe church is a new experience for you. And what you've found is you've taken a risk to enter into a church is that, well, wait a minute. Some of the stuff that I didn't understand, like I'm actually feeling it. It's actually true, right? Maybe you've taken a risk in your family or in a job. And listen, I'm talking about risks of righteousness, right? And by righteousness, I mean both parts, right and holy, okay? We're not talking about coming up with some highfalutin idea. This is what I know. If you want intimacy with God, you have to journey with Jesus. Even if it's just a little foray in the afternoon off the reservation. What you will find is that everything you have come to believe intellectually is so real experientially. And it will radically change you. You will change from the person that says, the Lord's my shepherd, to the person that says, the Lord is my shepherd? My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Right? Come hell or high water. Right? No matter what. And I 
will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There is poetic imagery to journeying to the highlands. Everyone wants a mountaintop experience, don't they? In every situation of life, we want them. I want them constantly. And we would love for us to just be dropped on top of the mountain to experience it, right? But the reality is, most often, you have to take the journey through the valley to graze in the highlands. And the journey will prepare you in the fullest way to receive the bounty of the highland. The Lord is our shepherd. We lack nothing. Let me pray with you.